Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 14th chapter of Exodus, uh, verses 10 through 31. uh, (laughs) Buckle up, it's a long one. (laughs) But uh, we got to do the whole miracle. So, uh, So hear now the word of our Lord. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through the Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other side all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all the night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water to their right and to their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariot so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. It seems like every couple of years there's a a rash of books dedicated to explaining 
you know, to scientifically minded how the stories of the Exodus are possible. These books usually propose naturally occurring phenomena that, that could account for the miracles in the Exodus. According to the theories, the burning bush could have been an oily plant that under the right heat condition could spontaneously burst into flame without scorching the leaves. So the authors say the manna in the wilderness was probably a naturally occurring edible fungus that grew up overnight. The parting of the Red Sea probably occurred during a low tide season. Whenever I hear these theories, I think about the story of, uh, of, the, of the, the, the college professor uh, who's, who's, who's explaining one of these theories in his class. He's explaining to his class of, uh, of young impressionable students um, how at a certain time of year, um, during a certain narrow part of the Red Sea, um, the tide uh, could be low enough during that time of year that there would really only be two inches of water there. And he said, see, in this condition, um, the, Israelite, the Israelites could have passed through because there would have been two inches of water. And someone in the back of the class shouts, glory, hallelujah, it's a miracle. And uh, the professor says, see, you don't understand. What I'm trying to explain to you is that it's not really a miracle because, see, there would have only been two inches of water because of this, uh, this, this springtime condition. And, and the guy at the back of the class shouts again, glory, glory, hallelujah. And, uh, and, and the guy says, it's not a miracle. There were only two inches of water. And the guy shouts again, hallelujah. God drowned the Egyptians in two inches of water. Either way you slice it, it's a miracle. The great 14th century theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote that to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. And to one without faith, no explanation is possible. If the Bible is to, believe, to be believed, and it is, a miracle occurred on that day. A miracle, by definition, is a divine intervention in the ordinary laws of physics. Miracles are supernatural. The parting of the Red Sea is either a miracle or it isn't. It's either the work of an almighty God, or it's not. And if it is, then no amount of searching for natural causes will explain it. Though, I do find it interesting that the Bible says that God sent a strong east wind overnight, and the sea became dry ground. Did anyone see the picture from the Bahamas last week? Right? People were standing on dry ground where an ocean was supposed to be. And, you know, a hurricane that's uh, big enough to suck up a lot of water might look like a pillar of cloud. Stop it, Danny, you're doing it. It's either a miracle or it's not. I believe it was. I believe... This was an amazing one-time display of God's power unparalleled in human history. But I also think that the miraculous events, the miraculous elements, can distract us from what is truly amazing about this passage. See, far more amazing than the pillar of cloud, far more amazing than the dry ground and the walls of water, the most amazing part of this passage to me was the crummy attitude of the Israelites. See, there they were 
on the eve of their freedom, on the verge of a miracle. And they cry out to Moses and say, we want to go back. The Israelites wanted to go back. Look at this, Exodus 14, 10 through 12. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They wanted to go back. How could they? On the eve of their deliverance, how could they go crawling back to Egypt? Don't they get it? They've seen the plagues. They've seen seen the miracles. They've seen what God can do. And here they are. They're being led out. And they get their backs to the sea and they see the army approaching. They want to crawl back. The Israelites were on the verge of a miracle, on the eve of freedom, on the edge of glory. But when their backs were against the sea, when they saw the Egyptian army coming, when they heard the thundering of the hooves, they wanted to flee to the people that once oppressed them. They wanted to slip on the shackles that once held them. They wanted to go crawling back to Egypt. And you know what? You and I were not so different. There's a whole genre of weird and unsettling newspaper article whose headline begins with the phrase, Florida man, dot, dot, dot. I read one a couple of years ago about a Florida man named Danny Villegas. Uh, Ten years prior to the article, Danny Villegas had been put in prison for bank robbery. After, uh, after serving his time for five years, he returned to society. He got back on his feet. Uh, he had a job working for a local construction company. One day, Danny walks into the Federal Credit Union in Florida, and he says uh, to the teller, I'm here to rob you. The teller presses her little button under the thing, and uh, and uh, Danny Villegas says, well, you might as well call the police, and then he sits down on the couch, and he waits for the police to arrive. See, Danny Villegas just wanted to go back to prison. See, life was simpler back there. He'd gotten used to it, and life out in the real world was complicated. There are all these pressures. Why, you may ask, why after everything he worked for, why after all he did to put his life back together, why would someone like Danny want to go crawling back to Egypt? I don't know, but people do every day. My wife, Crystal, works as a court advocate for victims of domestic abuse. The women she helped have to endure a lot to gain their freedom. They often flee their homes in the middle of the night or wind up in the hospital seeking shelter in a safe place to hide. 
Crystal takes pictures of the bruises, gets x-rays of the broken bones. She gives the women the financial support they need so that they can be independent, some of them for the first time in their adult lives. She gives them emotional support and encouragement. She helps them prepare for their court date. And meanwhile, at times, she endures death threats and the occasional assault. Then the big court date comes. The woman is on the stand alone, facing her abuser and his entire family and all his friends. Freedom is this close. And all too often, the woman lies. She says she can't remember anything. Nothing happened. I made it all up. They go crawling back to Egypt. I don't get it. I always, I always ask Crystal why. She says, you, you can't understand. They feel isolated and alone, uncertain about their future, afraid. They love them, and they don't know how to stop. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to understand the cycle of abuse, what is going on chemically and psychologically in the mind of an abused person. I don't know what demons they have to overcome to step from shadow to light. I know those pressures must be tremendous and deeply oppressive or they would be free. But what I do know is that time and time again, my wife has had to watch as women she has grown to care for, ache for, who have come so far, find themselves on the eve of freedom and go crawling back to Egypt. Most of us have people in our lives who have worked so hard to get themselves free from the things that once suppressed them, only to go crawling back to Egypt. Some of you may be picturing their faces right now. They struggled with sobriety for years, finally got themselves back where they needed to be. And all it took is one trip to the bottle to go crawling back to Egypt. This weight loss, financial trouble, other cycles of destruction. You've watched as friends and loved ones make the same mistakes over and over, get themselves free, build themselves back up. They're on the eve of their liberation and they go crawling back to Egypt. For some of you, the face you're picturing may be your own. All of us. See, all of us. All of us have been freed from the Egypt of sin and death and the life of God's mercy and love. And all of us go crawling back on our hands and knees to Egypt. Uh, the early church fathers saw in, uh, in this story a parable, uh, a metaphor for baptism. See, it's pretty cool when you think about it. See, you and I, like the Israelites, we were captive. But we were captive to sin and death. And then through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, through his death and resurrection, he leads us through the waters of baptism to our freedom. And then the oppressors in our life, the sins that entangle us, are drowned in the water. It's a pretty beautiful metaphor. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century said, 
if anyone should still serve the Egyptians, even if she, he should happen to have passed through the water. According to my thinking, he has not touched the mystical water whose function is to destroy tyrants. That seems harsh to me, but here's the point. You and I are hopelessly and helplessly addicted to the very things that would destroy us. We're sin junkies. We're repeat felons who too often prefer the simplicity and captivity and the single-minded slavish devotion to our own appetites, to whatever might be awaiting us in the unexplored wilderness of a life lived free in Jesus Christ. We're like the Berg at the bazaar. See, there was a man that went to a bazaar. He saw this, uh, he saw this uh, booth, and there was a bird um, who, was, uh, who was strapped uh, to a peg. He had like a, like a foot-long tether. And this bird kept walking in circles around the peg. And the man criticized the vendor. He said, this is cruel. Um, and the vendor said, well, if you want, you can buy the bird back. You can do whatever you want with him. So the man bought the bird. He cut the strap. And you know what happened. The bird kept walking around that same old circle, around that same old tent peg. Didn't even know it was free. Or didn't even know how to act free. Just continued going around and around and around in the same old circles. Have you been there? You've been liberated from sin and death, set free into new life, and yet you find yourself walking in the same old circles like you're still on the devil's leash. The pillar of cloud is before you. The waters are ready to part. You're on the eve of freedom, the hour of deliverance, the very moment of salvation, and you want to go crawling back to Egypt. When our backs are against the sea, how do we respond? In the 1930s, a, a scientist named William Bradford Cannon wrote an article about animal behavior. See, he uh, had noticed that when an animal senses danger, some things happen. Its heart rate increases. Its pupils dilate. Their hearing dampens and their vision narrows. The amygdala takes over. That deepest, oldest, least evolved part of the brain whose sole purpose is to help the animal survive reduces the situation to a simple binary. You know it. Fight or flight. And now we know that human beings do this too. You're walking down a dark alley. A stranger approaches you with a gun. Or you're cruising down the interstate and a car <laughs> comes at you from the other lane. Or you're taking a perfectly good nap and you're startled awake by the sound of a loud pop as the preacher shoots confetti all over the congregation. <laughs> Whatever it is, your body hunkers down and everything is reduced to a simple instinctual choice. Fight or flight. And too often, we know we can't win the Bible, we can't win the battle, so we choose flight. With our backs to the sea, just like the Israelites, we have a fight or flight moment. So what do we do? 
I truly believe these fight or flight moments occur in our spiritual lives. Moments of spiritual danger. Moments where our spiritual senses are heightened and we become acutely aware of the path that lies before us. Then deep within our spirits, our very soul is forced to make a choice between pressing forward and turning back. And I believe that far too often we realize rightly that we can't win the battle on our own. And so we choose to fly. Look if there's a third option between fight and flight for us this morning. Look at Moses' response to the Israelites after they're complaining. Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. See, Moses showed the Israelites the third way between fight and flight. Between fighting a battle you can't win and flying back to Egypt. Be still. Let God fight for you. Be still. I know what you're thinking. Gosh, be still. Let go and let God. What an insight. Why didn't I think of that? The answer is easy. Doing it's harder. Um, I have some friends that are really into slacklining. That's like that, um, that little tightrope thing. You see, there's kind of a flat tightrope and people put it between trees and they kind of balance on it and jump on it and do slackline things. And they always try to get me to slackline and I always try it out, but I always fall. They always tell me the same thing too. They say, it's really easy. Just relax your body and don't move. Be still. And in my head, I got it. Relax my body, be still, Right? And then as soon as I get up on that slack line, and I'm like a foot up off the ground, right? As soon as I get up on that slack line, like I tense up, and I'm wobbling, and I fall over. See, it's easy to know that you need to be still. It's harder when you feel things moving under you to do it. I used to get really nervous in the car um, when this song was really popular, Crystal would be driving and come on the radio and she'd go, Jesus, take the wheel, right? And I'd be in the other seat thinking, but metaphorically, because we don't want to die, right? Jesus takes the wheel, works in a country song. In our life, it's a little more complicated. In our life, we really don't want to hand over control. In our life, we really don't want to be still and let Jesus fight the battle for us. There's a difference between what we believe in our mind and what we trust with our heart. In our minds, we can know what God is capable of. In our minds, we can know that God can intervene in a mighty way. In our minds, we can believe that the waters will be pardoned. But in our heart, we can still be scared, longing for the stability of slavery and for our beds back home in Egypt. But I promise I promise, I pinky swear, cross my heart and hope to die, promise, this is true. When we have the courage to be still, God wins. Fight is easy. 
Flight is easy. What's hard is being still. Letting God fight the battle. But when we have the courage to be still, to hold our ground, to stand firm, to look in the eye to Pharaoh in our lives and say, I will not be moved, God wins. God wins when we lose our fear of failure and stand still in the face of impossible odds. God wins when we lose our impulse to return to the arms of sin once more and stand still in the face of overwhelming temptation. God wins when we lose our inner voice of deception that tells us that we're nothing but slaves and we stand still on the eve of freedom. God always wins, period, end of story, amen. Come on. You know how the story goes? When the Israelites stood at the Red Sea, God parted the waters and the people passed through on dry ground. There were walls of water to the right and to the left. Then the Pharaoh and his army pursued them and God closed the waters in around them and they sank like a stone. God won. When they crossed the Jordan and the walls of Jericho stood between them and the land of promise, they wanted to turn back. But God told Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. And God won and the walls came tumbling down. When the tribe were settling the land and the neighboring countries rose up against them, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, each time the people cried out in distress and each time God raised up a judge like Gideon and Deborah and Samson and he won. When Israel chose a king for itself, when they said, we want Saul, then the nation was endangered by a Philistine. God chose his own king. A man after his own heart. A shepherd boy who stared a giant in the eyes and declared, You come against me with swords and spirit, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, and the battle is the Lord's. And giants were slain and armies were driven back and God won. God won against the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. God won when the Hebrew children were thrown in the fiery furnace. God won. When Daniel was in the den of the lions. When God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world. The powers of this world conspired against him. They mocked him. Spat on him and hurled insults against him. They whipped him and placed a crown of thorns on his head. And they nailed him to a tree. He was dead. He was in the ground. The tomb was sealed. And three days later, the stone was rolled away and Christ stood in resurrection victory. God won. God always wins. Whatever you're facing, God can beat it. I promise you, God can beat it. Whatever barrier stands between you and your freedom, God can bring it down. Just be still. Stand firm. Let the Lord fight the battle. God always wins. God is the one who makes a way out of no way. He is our rock, our redeemer, our ever-present help in times of trouble. He is the shepherd that leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And he is the king who lifts us up on eagle's wings to shine like the sun. He is the alpha 
and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Lord of all creations and the Ancient of Days, who was and is and is to come. He is Elohim, El Shaddai, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, the Great I Am. He is Abba Father. He is God Almighty, and He always, 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 always wins. The only question for us is when the waves part, when the waters pile on top of one another and form mighty walls, when the Lord Almighty goes before His people in victory and leads them through dry land into freedom, and when it comes crashing down that around the enemy and he sinks like a stone. When God wins, where will you be? Will you be back in Egypt, walking around in the same old circles? Or will you be on the other side of the sea, singing a new song? Be still. And the Lord will fight the battle for you. Be still. Stand firm. And trust. As you're back against the sea this morning, are you looking ahead at all that life is throwing at you? And are you thinking to yourself, maybe Egypt wasn't so bad. Out here, it's just so raw and real. Out here, I just feel so exposed. Out here, everything is just so complicated. I can't win this fight. It's time to fly. Be still. Stand firm. Be still. Trust in God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Be still. The Lord will fight the battle for you. And God always wins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.